Father, we do thank you for that amazing love, that marvelous love that you showed us, demonstrated for us in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So, Lord, it is for that reason that we can come to you and praise you and worship you and thank you for all the things that you've done. We pray that this would not just be lip service, as Pastor Terry said a moment ago, that it would not just be lip service, but this would show the true intention of our heart, that we would go out and live repentant lives. We would not just be regretful of our sin and remorseful for the things that we've done, but people who have fled to Jesus and trusted in Him and sought forgiveness and followed after Him. Lord, we pray that we would be true disciples of Christ. Father, I pray for those who don't know You today. We pray that You'd bring them to the knowledge of saving grace in Christ. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, we are so privileged to open the Word of God again, as we do each week, to study it, to learn it, and to do this all with hearts that would obey. I'm so grateful for you being with us this morning. Please turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 27. Matthew 27, this is a very long chapter in the Bible, it gives us an overview of Jesus' final hours. You know, back in chapter 7, Jesus said that it is a broad gate and an easy way that leads to hell. He said, therefore, many are on that path. In contrast, you remember, is the gate that is small and the way that is narrow that leads to everlasting life. And therefore, there are few who find it. Later in that chapter there, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 7, Jesus says, that Therefore, many will come to Him at the end, presuming that they're going to heaven. They'll say, Lord, Lord, only to be told, Depart from me, I never knew you. As a pastor tasked with preaching the whole counsel of the Word of God, it is my biblical job, part of my job description really, to make clear to you what is that broad and easy way in contrast to what is the narrow and small way? What is the easy, presumed way of salvation versus what is the true, indeed hard way of salvation? Because the fact of the matter is, not according to me, but according to Jesus, most people won't make it. Not according to me, but according to Jesus, in the end, we're not going to be surprised who gets in. We're going to be shocked about who doesn't make it. So my job here in preaching the gospel is to make clear, as clear as I can, week in and week out, what are the gospel truths that you must believe and what it really means to repent and follow Jesus. I have to make distinctions. I have to call our attention to these distinctions of the broad path versus the narrow path. One such distinction is that it's easy to believe, and truly most people believe, that Jesus is merely a good man a moral teacher, a person of kindness and peace. It's hard to believe, it's hard to swallow, and so few people really believe it, and 
ingests the idea that Jesus is indeed the Messiah God, and thus He is the only way of salvation. Another distinction that I'm tasked with is to make the distinction that the crucifixion had a purpose. It's easy to believe, and in fact, really it's part of the dogma of a lot of mainline liberal denominations that Jesus died as a great moral example of someone who died for what He really believed in. It's hard to swallow what Scripture says, that Jesus died a substitutionary atonement for our sin, and so He satisfied God's wrath against sinners. That's the narrow path, a small gate, if you come to that belief. Well, these are some distinctions, among others, that we have to make about doctrine, about belief. We also have to make distinctions about actions, about genuine repentance. What does repentance really look like? Because James said the faith, that faith that without works is dead. He said that kind of faith that changes nothing in a person's life is not genuine faith, and it cannot save them. And so as a gospel preacher, I also have to make the distinction that not just belief, but distinction in terms of behavior. What does true repentance look like? If faith genuinely has taken hold of someone's mind and heart, what is the evidence? How should it change their lives? How should it change their attitudes and behaviors? Well, in the story of the most infamous man in history, Judas Iscariot, we learn of these distinctions. Because here before us is a man who was full of remorse, who was full of regret, but he was clearly not repentant. He was a man who believed some facts about Jesus. He assented to some truths about Jesus and even about his own sin. Mentally and emotionally, he assented to these things, but he did not love Jesus or At least he did not love him enough to pursue him, seeking forgiveness. And so in the end, what we have is a story of Judas and the failure of mere remorse. I pray that this does not describe your faith. Someone who has sensed to some facts, someone who maybe feels a little bit of regret or remorse about the things you have done, but you never have really denied yourself, taken up your cross and followed after Jesus. If that is you, I hope the Judas story today will move you to respond genuinely to the gospel. All right, let's read this. Matthew chapter 27. I'm going to read the first 10 verses. Follow along as I read aloud. When morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put Him to death. And they bound Him and led Him away and delivered Him over to Pilate the governor. Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, What is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed, and he went and hanged himself. The chief priest, taking the pieces of silver, said, It is not lawful to put them into the treasury since it's blood money. So they took counsel and bought with them the potter's field, bought and bought with them the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. 
And it was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, And they took the thirty pieces of silver, the price of him on whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field as the Lord directed me. This is the word of God. May we hear it and obey it as such. Our men's study, the men of the word, began a new semester yesterday, and we started in our main session, the history of the Reformation. And at the end of our time yesterday morning, we touched on the point of Luther's commitment into the monastery. Many of you know the story. Luther was in his doctoral studies. He was wanting to become a lawyer, get his doctor of jurisprudence. He had gone through university and gotten a master's degree as well, and then was turning his attention to his doctoral studies. And a number of difficult things happened. He was having a, a hard time, some hard things, emotionally, spiritually, physically even. He was having a hard time. His life was sort of tough. tough. And so he, he took a few days. They had a few days break, and he took a few days from his studies to go see his parents in the middle of the summer. On his way back, you remember this, there was suddenly a, a thunderstorm, a bolt of lightning either struck him or struck very near to him. It knocked him off his horse onto the ground. And he cried out. Do you remember who he cried out to? It wasn't God. It wasn't even Mary. It was St. Anne. Someone's saying it. St. Anne. St. Anne is Mary's mother, the patron saint that he probably grew up venerating, the patron saint of his town and uh, most likely the patron saint of sm copper smelters, which is what his dad did and many people did in the town of Mansfield, Germany. So he cried out to St. Anne and promised that he would go into the monastery. And he did. He got back, he told his friends, he sent a message to his parents. His friends threw a little goodbye party because they assumed if you're going to the monastery, we'll never see you again. They threw a little goodbye party for him and he left and he went into the monastery there at Erfurt. Now Luther clearly was not saved in this moment. He did not even know the gospel at this point. By God's grace, God would use these things in his life to, to bring him to the gospel like he does in everybody's life who is a Christian. He providentially moves them to the gospel. But at this point, his faith was deficient. His idea of God was deficient. In fact, what you could say in terms of Luther, all he really had at this point was great remorse and regret. He was broken. He was hurt. He was he saw the sin in his own heart. He saw the sin in other people's lives. He saw the hardship around him. And he responded by making some sort of commitment, but it was a commitment out of remorse. It wasn't a commitment to Christ. It wasn't a commitment to truth. It certainly wasn't a repentance. It was insufficient. Now, Jesus had made it clear all throughout his ministry to repent and believe. That was sort of the summary statement of his preaching, repent and believe, a part of faith or really an outflow of faith, a part of belief, an outflow of genuine belief is that someone would repent. He would follow after Christ. That word over and over again, in the Greek it's metanoia, repent, repent, repent over and over again. Judas would have been very familiar with Jesus saying that very word. But we see right there in verse 3 when it says, 
Judas saw Jesus being condemned, he, quote, unquote, changed his mind. That phrase is one word, metamelomai, and that is not the word for repentance. That is best translated as a word regret. Judas realized too late how bloody and awful this would be, and he regretted his actions to betray Jesus. He realized whose side he was on. He realized the evil that he had got himself involved in. I mean, maybe initially it wasn't that big of a deal to watch him get roughed up by some of the, the temple guard and some of the, the Pharisees and scribes and priests that were there putting him under trial all through the night. But here it was now, the new morning was dawning, and Jesus was heading to execution. And Judas was full of deep regret, and this gives us the idea, the first idea of the failure of mere remorse. Number one, if you're taking notes, regret without repentance. Regret without repentance. Again, as we've seen this every week recently, this is a whole part of Matthew. Matthew's demonstrating all the, the darkness and sin that is surrounding the death of Jesus, and one of those dark stories that we keep on coming back to, and this is the last time we come back to it, is a story of Judas, a man who was close to Jesus, a man who was familiar with Jesus, who understood Jesus, who followed Jesus on the external. He followed Jesus, but in the end, he betrayed Jesus for at least... 90 bucks, but nothing more than about $400. He sees this and he's suddenly full of regret. Now, let me make clear, regret can in part be what God uses. This guilty feeling can, can be in part what God uses to bring you to repentance. It can lead a person to further understanding how their sin can finally be dealt with and forgiven. How can my sin be atoned for? How can I be right with God? With all my sin and your conviction over the sin, this is what the Holy Spirit does to people. He brings them to a level of regret for their sin. Gets them to a point where they're begging for some sort of forgiveness and atonement, but it didn't bring Judas to that point. He saw all this tragedy had caused. He saw his, what his sin had caused. He felt terrible about it. And he, indeed, it could have been the first step of conviction to get him to say, what can be done about my sin? But instead, it was just simple regret. Look up verse 1. When morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death, and they bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate the governor. It doesn't say specifically, but it says in, in verse 3, Judas saw Jesus was condemned. And what I deduce, deduce from this is that Judas was sort of there all along. He, he was there in the garden, right, when Jesus was arrested. He followed them down. He probably watched these trials all along. And now what he's watching is them bind up Jesus, most likely. In fact, the word here indicates it was with chains. They, they bound him up. They wrapped him up in chains. And they led him away, not to another religious trial, but to a trial for execution. Judas watched all this happen. Now they're leading him to the man, Pontius Pilate, who does indeed have the authority to kill him. And suddenly the idea of Christ's torture and death is too much for Judas. He feels terrible about what he had done. Many years ago there was a fellow whose uh, wife was a member here. He never 
was a member here because he was not a Christian, didn't profess Christ, didn't believe the gospel. And he'd done a lot of horrible things. He'd been very stupid, violated his marriage and many times and in many sundry ways he had violated his marriage. And usually guys like that, if I ever get a chance to speak with them, they're, they're full of excuses, they're full of pride, they're full of all kinds of backpedaling and cover-up. So it really surprised me one day when I got a phone call from this fellow and he said, I want to meet with you. Couldn't believe it. We met, and to my surprise, this guy broke down. He was a big guy, big football player. He broke down, and he wept uncontrollably over all the things that he had done to his wife, to his marriage, over all the sin. He even went back into pre-marriage, all the things that he had done, all these sins that he had committed. He just broke down and just heaving and weeping. He was overcome with regret. And so I was very excited to tell him, friend, there's hope for you. Not only is there hope that your wife will forgive you and your marriage can be reconciled, but more importantly, Jesus can forgive you. He's provided His atonement to forgive you. You can, you can be reconciled with God. And he looked at me and says, well, I don't want to do that. And here's a man who was broken, regretful, weeping uncontrollably, but took zero steps to turn away from his sin and to follow after Christ. Zero repentance. Regret without repentance. R.C. Sproul said, Judas knew he'd sinned, but did not choose to flee to God for mercy. He didn't choose to come in repentance before the Lord. Instead, he went to the wicked priests. He didn't follow after Jesus. He didn't go to God. He went to the wicked priests, at least to try to somehow unwind all that he'd done. It's almost like Judas thought to himself, I'll, I'll do all this. I'll, I'll go to the priests. I'll give money back. I'll recant my testimony. I'll even kill myself. But the last thing I'm going to do is go to Jesus for forgiveness. Have you known people like that? Are you like that? You feel bad about your sin, feel bad about the things you've done. The last thing you want to do is to become a Jesus follower. You stop short of true repentance, no real fellowship, no desire to do the one thing that would reconcile you to God, to fall to your knees begging for forgiveness, trusting in what Christ accomplished on the cross and in His resurrection. Plenty of regret, which again, perhaps may be the first step, And as we will see here, regret without repentance and forgiveness is suicide. Well, that takes us to the next few verses and the next point. What's another deficiency of mere remorse? Number two, it's guilt without godliness. Guilt without godliness. Look at verse 3 again. Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. Throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed, went and hanged himself. But the chief priests, taking the pieces of silver, said it's not lawful to put them into the treasury since it's blood money. So they took counsel and bought with them the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. So he went up to the temple, and there most likely it means referring to the whole temple mount. 
these, this group, elders and priests, and you can imagine priests would have been inside the actual temple doing uh, temple structure, doing uh, the processes that were associated with Passover at that time. Uh, but he goes to a place where the priests and elders were, so my guess, this is probably in the room up on the Temple Mount, not in the temple proper, but up on the Temple Mount where the Sanhedrin would meet. And perhaps they would meet up there and maybe they were taking uh, issues, maybe people were coming to them and standing before them, and it sounds like that Judas took that opportunity to go in and approach them all. Maybe they're sitting at a great panel and he goes into this group. He goes in there and admits his wrongdoing, admits his fault. He says, I've betrayed innocent blood. He, he recognizes Jesus is innocent. He, he acknowledges the truth of Jesus. He's innocent. Let me undo this. This has gone too far. I wish I hadn't done this to begin with. And the priests and the elders couldn't have cared less. They got what they wanted. They pulled off the arrest. They finally got Jesus in the chains that they wanted him in all, after all, and they wanted him dead. And so they were getting exactly what they wanted, and now they're turning their enemy, Jesus, over to the Roman authorities who could kill him. But what do they care about this slimeball betrayer coming back and begging to renege? They didn't care at all. What is that to us, they say? They couldn't care less what happened to this guy. Newsflash, the priests and elders and scribes and Pharisees are not there to help people. They're in it for themselves. I won't mention American politics at this point. Certainly was no mercy for them, from them, no kindness, just greed. They were in it for themselves. They used him for their nefarious task. And now they're done with him. What do we care? Go take care of that yourself. Your conscience is hurting? Oh, too bad. Later. Get out of our way. So Judas throws the 30 pieces of silver. Again, the significance of 30 pieces of silver is that it is an insult, right? This is an insultuous amount. You can go back or listen or watch the message from chapter 26, 14 to 16. We discuss that in more detail. Judas took that money full of guilt and anger, and he threw it down, and he ran off. Now, the next phrase says very simple, simply, he went and hanged himself. And if you've read the book of Acts, you know there is more to this story. Acts chapter 1, verses 15 to 20 says this, just listen to this. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers, a company of persons was all in about 120, and said, brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong he burst open in the middle, and all of his bowels gushed out and became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language, Akeldama, that is, field of blood. Now we need to deal with this because... Some, when they read this passage and read Matthew, they immediately presume, really, that there's a discrepancy in the Bible. They found a mistake. Aha, we've found a mistake in the Bible. Matthew says he hung himself, and Luke clearly has some sort of other different idea of what happened to Judas and how he died. 
And they go on to explain that the Bible is just loaded with errors like this, mistakes like this. It took many years, really it took the modern mind, the evolved mind, to, to really see all these mistakes. It's a very prideful and very presumptuous position. Just assume that everybody before them couldn't see all these mistakes that they so clearly see. It's a very prideful, presumptuous position. But it is indeed the default position of theological liberals and secularists to approach the Bible with doubt and skepticism. Matthew wrote his gospel many years before Luke wrote the book of Acts. The book of Matthew was widely disseminated, and by the time Luke wrote, and we learn from the early verses in the book of Luke, Luke said he was very careful to look at all the accounts and gather all the evidence and write a, an accurate account. So Luke, and presumably Theophilus to whom he wrote, and all the others reading those firsthand accounts of Jesus, or excuse me, Judas' death, they saw no problem with the two accounts. They did not see that there was any lack of coherence. They did not see that there was a, a contradiction here. Perhaps it's because they knew exactly what happened, and so they, they didn't see a contradiction at all. The ancient church, the next generation, the ancient church read the two accounts of Judas' death. They saw no problem. They did not see any contradiction. The Christians, the church in the Middle Ages, they read it. They saw no contradiction, no problem. The Reformation time, the, the saints that lived in that time, they read the two different accounts, and they did not see any contradiction. They did not see any problem. The next generation, the age of the Puritans, and then the Great Awakenings in America, they read the two accounts, and they saw no problem. It wasn't until skeptics and atheists, the likes of Darwin and others, came along did Christians suddenly decide that after 1,800 years, the Christians all before them were too stupid to see all the multitude of errors in the Bible. Well, that's the attitude you have to have if you go to Scripture as a skeptic, as a critic, already having decided in your heart that Scripture is full of errors, and you, the smart person, are here to point these things out, and all those ancient Christians for 1,800 years were too stupid to see those errors. I always find it amazing that some of these folks will happily acknowledge that God can work miracles, just not the miracle of inspiration. That's the one miracle that God certainly can't do. On the other hand, if you approach the Scripture with an attitude of trust, an attitude that believes God is actually capable of producing inerrant, His inerrant Word and preserving that even through the works of translations and preserving the truths, it's easy to see that accounts like this can cohere easily with zero contradiction. For instance, the word hanged there, that word hanged in the original doesn't mean that what we think, we think of hanging, we think of a, a rope and a noose and some sort of dropping down. That word hang is not limited to suicide in that way or, in, or death in that way. Hanging could mean nailing to a cross. Later they would say Jesus was hung on a cross. Hanging could also mean impaling yourself on something. We don't know that his suicide was not hanging with a noose or was specifically hanging with a noose. We don't know exactly what happened. Another way these two accounts could cohere, we don't, again, we don't know these details, but again, it must be something like this because the early church, and for 1,800 years, all Christians sort of agreed, these things do not contradict one another. And I think this is the best option for someone like Judas who had no friends or family down in 
Judea, when someone would commit suicide, it wasn't like you had all these loving friends and family who would come and you didn't have some uh, parks and recreation department with a go and do cleanup. No, they would just usually just leave the body there and let the animals and the critters and nature do its work. Natural decomposition would occur, critters, animals, birds would be involved, and eventually the body would fall in a decomposed state, which is, I think this is what Luke is capturing here. Others say, well, it's possible that the rope broke and something that Luke describes in Acts is possible. All that to say, any number of these things are a very simple, easily understood explanation why these two accounts can cohere perfectly. You don't have to immediately assume that, oh, here's a mistake. Somehow, for many years, particularly for those who who were in the early church, they saw it and had no problem with these two accounts. All right, a little but very important digression there. There is also the issue of, of his acquiring of the field. And uh, again, what we, what we read in Matthew is what's called literary compression. He's making this story short, even in, though chapter 27 is long. He's not recording each and everything that was said and done during those times. This is something that, that was summarized, and, and even what happened with the field is summarized. And so the acquiring of that field, it may have been initially with Judas, and they completed the transaction and took ownership of this field. This field obviously was a, a cheap uh, acqui- uh, acquisition because it, uh, it says it was a, became a burial place. So it couldn't, be, it couldn't be some place that was used for cultivation and used to grow plants. Plus, it had a... It had a, uh, a, 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 a disclosure on it, right? Someone had committed suicide here, and so I don't think a lot of people wanted to buy that field. Obviously, it couldn't have been very expensive because it was bought for at least, for no more than $400. I mean, this is a pretty cheap piece of land. All right, again, a little bit of digression there. Back to our study. Judas was full of, Judas was full of remorse. He was full of guilt. And what is notable is that he did not turn to God. He did not follow after Jesus. He did not seek forgiveness. In short, you would say he's, he didn't have a Godward heart. He didn't point his attention at this, in this crucial moment of, of guilt and conviction of sin. He didn't point his attention to God. In common vernacular and the way we say it today, he was not godly. He didn't think of God. He didn't point his attention and love to God. He turned to himself. He turned to the wicked rulers and leaders of the day, and then he turned to suicide. Incidentally, suicide is a sin, no doubt about it. You're killing something. You're not turning to God. But I would add this. Uh, there's nothing in, Bible, in the Bible that says if you commit suicide, you have to go to hell. Sometimes you'll come across this. There have been teachers and preachers who have said this, that this is sort of the unpardonable sin. If you commit suicide, then you go straight to hell. It voids whatever decision you made. Now, I know enough Christians to know there are people that are really troubled in their hearts. Things happen to them. There are health problems. There are very complicated things that can happen in people's hearts. They don't lose their salvation if they commit suicide. Even if that suicide is sinful, they don't lose their salvation. Judas, of course, was not saved to begin with. And this is just a fleshing out of his guilt and regret. Judas did not turn to God. He was not godly. He didn't turn to the God of hope. He didn't turn to the God of forgiveness. He didn't turn to the God who had provided atonement for him. He could have approached Jesus. People did approach Jesus 
and speak of their faith in him. You think of the centurion. You think even of the criminal, one of the criminals that was next to him. He approached Jesus, asked him questions, and had faith in Christ. Judas didn't go up and do that at all. He turned to wicked people and eventually turned to suicide. That's never the answer, folks. That's turning away from God in hopelessness and guilt and regret. Why not turn to God who can fill you with hope, fill you with forgiveness, show you that life is not hopeless? Well, Judas kills himself, and all the indignity of that brings us to point number three, mere remorse fails because in the end you suffer a, number three, death without dignity. Death without dignity. Dying with dignity. We humans are pretty concerned about dignity when we get closer and closer to the end of life. In fact, there's whole industries involved in finding dignity and searching for dignity when you die. And really no one, myself included, wants to be shamed or embarrassed in the way in which we die. No one wants the embarrassment or shame that some particular diseases or circumstances may bring. We want to die with dignity. However, there's a greater indignity in death than just dying embarrassed, losing control of your body. What's true indignity? It is dying as a faithless human being. It's dying in your sin, not trusting in Christ. I mean, the fact of the matter is most of us will die and in some way be uh, less than a dignified death. Our families may give us privacy and try to provide that dignity, but in the end, all of us will be in some ways indignified in our death. What's more important is that we die leaving a dignified legacy of faithfulness, perseverance, joy as we profess Christ. That's true dignity. In fact, if you die that way, you can, trusting in Christ, if you die that way, you can die in any way you want, even if it's extremely shameful, and you will be dying a dignified person. I was reading the story this week of St. Agatha. Agatha was a child of uh, noble birth in Sicily, lived in the 200s as she was growing up. The local governor saw how beautiful she was becoming as a teenager, and she requested uh, to her parents that he would have her as his wife. To everyone's surprise, Agatha refused his advance, and they asked her why. She said that she had become a Christian, and she trusted in Christ and believed in Christ, and she refused to marry anyone who was pagan, only those who trusted in Christ. Well, the governor would not be embarrassed by this young lady, and so he didn't want to fight with her. Instead, he decided to shame her. He had her arrested, and he had her forced into a brothel in order to become a sex worker. After three years, she had never rendered services to anybody, so he sent his soldiers there to arrest her again, and he brought her to his dungeon to be tortured, and there they tortured her. Weeks turns into months, and it was week after week after week after week of torture. They did not leave her alone. Your knowledge of the, even the crucifixion, you know, in that day they were perfecting ideas of pain and torture. I will not detail for you the horrifying and extremely public and shameful torture that they perpetrated on this young woman. Finally, the governor 
decided that she would not recant her commitment to Christ, and so he would burn her. Evidently, before he got a chance to do that, there was an earthquake where she, along with all, she incurred injury along with all her other injuries from her torture. She received some fatal wounds and eventually died from those wounds, never recanting, never relenting, trusting in Jesus. What's her legacy? Do we remember Agatha for the shame and indignity of all the torture? No, we see her as one of the most dignified people in all of human history. In fact, if you were to go to Sicily, you know that they celebrate every February 5th. They celebrate St. Agatha Day. In fact, there are several days throughout the calendar that they celebrate Agatha. What a legacy. What was Judas' legacy? I read from Acts. He was numbered among the disciples, the treasurer. He had ministry given to him, Peter says. He did all these great things during his life, but in the end, he was proven to be unfaithful. His life was pretty much the mirror image, the the opposite of Agatha's and many others. His legacy is, quote, a field of blood. Faithlessness, betrayal, Remorse, regret, indignity, and suicide. Verse 6, the chief priest taking the pieces of silver said, it's not lawful to put them into the treasury since it is blood money. Boy, the irony of these hypocrites is just amazing. Suddenly we're concerned about the law. It's amazing. They call it blood money. They know this is blood money. But we're going to take it anyway. Here they are supposed to care for people, supposed to care ultimately about the Messiah. They could care less about all these things or killing him, such hypocrites. So they took counsel, bought with them a potter's field as a burial place for strangers. They bought on behalf of Judas using his money. They couldn't receive the blood money. That's how these two passages here in Matthew and also in Acts coincide. On behalf of him, they bought that field. Therefore, verse 8, the field has been called the field of blood to this day. Verse 9, then it was fulfilled all that had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, and they took 30 pieces of silver, the price of him, whom a price had been set by the son, some of the sons of Israel, and they gave him for the potter's field as the Lord directed me. You know, very sad, sad here. It basically says they priced Jesus, they priced him at 30 pieces of silver, the value of a graveyard for foreigners. Again, meaning it was probably very cheap, couldn't be cultivated and That was their value of the Messiah. The legacy of Judas, in spite of all that he did good in life, was the fact that he was a betrayer. Matthew quoted from Jeremiah 32, 6-9, and he repeats some language that he used earlier, quoting from Zechariah 11, 12, and 13. This man, his action, his ill repute, his betrayal, his indignity, was all part of God's providence. Even Judas' besmirched legacy, a regretful, remorseful betrayer, was part of God's massive plan to redeem humanity. What's your legacy going to be like? Is it going to be like Judas, someone who did some good things, but in the end, you die with indignity because you don't trust Christ, you don't live a repentant life? Now, in spite of all this, in spite of all this sin, in spite of this man killing himself in a repentless, 
remorse. God's plan was moving forward. God's plan was moving forward. His plan was to get Jesus on the cross to redeem people, guilty people, shameful people, undignified people such as you and me in order to make us guiltless, dignified children of God, to make us white as snow. If it was on our own, we would leave not a legacy of faith and trust and purity. We would leave a legacy much like Judas. And so even in this dark moment, even in these passages where we read about this undignified, guilty character, we learn about hope and truth, the wonderful legacy of faith that awaits anyone who would trust in Christ, repent of their sin, and follow after Christ, fleeing after the Savior, fleeing after God for mercy and forgiveness. Even more, this becomes a pattern for those of us who believe, right? When we sin, we feel the depth of our flesh, we feel the sickening remnants of our flesh in us, and we have that remorse. That's great, but that's not where it ends. Then we take this and we come to Christ, and we again seek forgiveness. And Jesus Christ is faithful to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from unrighteousness. Well, let's pray that this activity defines us as we seek to live lives abandoned to Christ so much that it becomes our own legacy. Father, we thank you for your truth. We thank you for what you've given us in the story of Judas. For, Lord, it is a negative story. It's a story of a, of a man who had all the truth and even had the Son of God right in front of him. And yet he died leaving a legacy of indignity and blood and suicide and guilt and remorse and regret without any repentance. So, Lord, may we see this and see that this is all part of the story so that we could be redeemed. All this sin was to get Christ on the cross so that those who would have faith in Him would be saved. And so, Lord, we pray for those who don't know You. I pray that they would seek not simply remorse and regret over their sin, but they would see the hope and joy and truth and forgiveness that is provided in Christ. And for all of us, Lord, we want to make this a pattern of life where when we sin, we come to Christ. We seek forgiveness. We come to Him over and over again, knowing that in Christ we find hope and dignity and truth and forgiveness. In reality, that's what we search for, forgiveness and reconciliation with you. We thank you for what you provided in Christ. The fact that we can even pray to you is evidence of what Christ has done. We ask all these things in his name. Amen. Please stand with me for a benediction. This is inspired by 2 Corinthians 7.10, which says, Godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret whereas worldly grief produces death. Now may we go with a desire to have godly sorrow that leads us to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. And may we love on one another and help one another to do the same. Amen. Amen.